0: Thank you. Do you take a seat? Thank you for those expertly done readings. And it's great to have the privilege to preach on Psalm 19 this morning. My parents are here this morning and I just discovered from them that they had this psalm at their wedding. Uh, So that's a nice coincidence. The Bible uh, depicts David, whose dates are about 1040 to 970 BC, as a skilled musician. 1 Samuel 16:23 uh, says that he played the lyre uh, for King Saul. One of the Dead Sea Scrolls indeed attributes 3600 Tehillim or Songs of Praise and other compositions to David. 73 of the 150 psalms in our Bible are by, of, or about David. While Psalm 19 might have been written by David, the Hebrew in the first verse can mean uh, for the use of or dedicated to, uh, as well as by. Uh, So it's impossible to be sure that Psalm 19 was written by David, Um, but I will retain the name for ease of reference from here on out. In Psalm 19, David begins with knowledge about God and ends with knowledge of God. That is, with knowing God in a personal relationship. David's lyrics highlight two ways in which God speaks to us through the heavens that he has made, and through the moral law that he has revealed. In this, David reminds me of the 18th century philosopher Immanuel Kant, who famously remarked, two things or me the most, the starry sky above me and the moral law within me. Psalm 19 takes us on a journey with David from his recognition that the heavens declare the glory of God, and that the law of the Lord is wholesome, to his very realistic assessment of his own moral standing before God. Who can discern their own errors? Forgive me my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. David invites those who sing this psalm to discover a personal knowledge of God that builds upon but goes way beyond simple knowledge about God. It was in the tradition of Psalm 19 that the Apostle Paul wrote that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. It's Romans one twenty. Seems to me that neither Paul nor David had in mind the philosophical project of arguing for God's existence. Paul is certainly aware of the tradition of theistic arguments. A tradition that stretches back at least as far as the 5th century B.C and Acts 14.17 records him using one such argument, a design-type argument. But that's not what's going on, either in Romans 1 or in Psalm 19. Rather, these passages are operating at the level of common sense. They're discussing what contemporary philosophers describe as people's properly basic intuitions about reality. Uh, The Roman Cicero uh, talked about this sort of common sense, experienced-based knowledge of God. Uh, He professed what could be more clear or obvious when we look up to the sky and contemplate the heavens than that there is some divinity of superior intelligence. Cicero relates a philosophical thought experiment from the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle. It goes like this. Thus Aristotle brilliantly remarks, suppose that there were men who had always lived underground in good and well-lighted dwellings adorned with statues and pictures and furnished with everything in which those who are thought happy abound. But suppose, however, that they had never gone above ground. But had learned by report and hearsay that there was a divine spirit in power. Suppose then that at some time the jaws of the earth opened and they were able to escape and make their way from their hidden dwellings into these regions which we inhabit. When they suddenly saw the earth, and seas and skies and when they learned the grandeur of cloud and the power of wind when they saw the sun and realised not only its grandeur and beauty but also its power by which it fills the sky with light and makes the day When again night darkened the lands and they saw the whole sky picked out and adorned with stars. And the varying light of the moon as it waxes and wanes. And the risings and settlings of all these bodies in their courses settled and immutable to all eternity. And when they saw those things, most certainly would they have judged both that there are gods... And that these great works are the works of gods. Thus far, Aristotle. Well, both the appearance of design, and indeed the arguments for design, from those appearances, have only become the more stronger, the more that modern science has discovered about our cosmos. A significant example of this phenomena concerns the discovery that the laws of nature are finely tuned in such a way as to make biology of any kind possible. As Stephen Hawking admits in his recent book The Grand Design, for life to exist, quote, the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way. Here's an analogy that I like to use for this. You see someone walk up to one of those hole-in-the-wall cash machines and they enter a series of numbers into the keypad and the machine gives them money. Were they lucky? Of course not. They obviously got their money by design. Now, although any sequence of numbers of the same length that you put into the machine has an identical degree of unlikely complexity design is surely the best explanation for someone entering the one special specific sequence of numbers needed to access their money from the machine
1: that the basic
0: laws and constants of the cosmos should turn out to be life-permitting rather than life-prohibiting is a parallel example of what statisticians call specified complexity or unlikeliness. And whenever a complex contingent event matches uh, an independently knowable functionally specified pattern we intuitively infer design and quite rightly so. As the atheist astronomer Fred Hoyle famously admitted, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics. Turning from the heavens to the moral law, David reflects upon the commandments revealed by Moses revealed to Moses, sorry and it's clear that David doesn't embrace the law simply because Moses claimed that he got it from God rather David appeals to his own moral intuitions as confirming that the law is good the law of the Lord is wholesome, refreshing the soul Than honey from the honeycomb. For David. There's an intimate connection. Between the goodness of the law. And the goodness of God. God is the rock. At the foundation of the law. Whose moral decrees are firm. Rather than arbitrary. And for whom Fear or respectful awe should rightly endure forever. As philosopher Francis Beckwith explains, God's commands are good not just because God commands them, but because God is good. Thus, God is not subject to a moral order outside of himself. And neither are God's moral commands arbitrary. God's commands are issued by a perfect being who is the source of all goodness. You don't have to believe in God or in the Old Testament revelation in order to know or to do, at least on occasion, the right thing the apostle Paul made this clear again in Romans he writes when Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature things required by the law they are a law for themselves even though they don't have the law since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts their consciences also bearing witness their thoughts now accusing and now even defending them Nevertheless, we can argue that although belief in God isn't a requirement for for knowing or being moral, the existence of a perfect personal God is crucial for there to be possible a coherent understanding of there being such a thing as the moral law, of an objective moral order. Like most humans, David experiences apparently objective moral values. He experiences these moral values as facts, as things he discovers to be true. Not as things that he or his culture just happened to have invented. David's In treatment of Uriah the Hittite, husband of the very beautiful Bathsheba, have a look at 2 Samuel verse 11, wasn't merely something we dislike because of our evolutionary history or merely something that our society has decided to frown upon. Rather, as David himself acknowledges in 2 Samuel 2.13, his indirect murder of Uriah by sending him on a suicide mission was objectively wrong. Again, only the recognition that moral values are objective things makes any sense out of David's moral fallibility, which he recognises. Who can discern their own errors? Forgive me my hidden faults. I mean, it's impossible to make moral errors if there is no objective standard of right to get wrong. So objective moral values, what are they? They're they're transcendent ideals that prescribe, that obligate our behaviour. But an ideal implies a mind. A prescription requires a prescriber. An obligation must be to a person. Hence, even many atheists openly admit that in the absence of a transcendent deity, objective moral values cannot exist. Just one quote from the French atheist Jean-Paul Sartre. He held that it was extremely embarrassing that God does not exist, for there disappears with him all possibility of finding values... In an intelligible heaven, there can no longer be any good a priori, since there is no infinite and perfect consciousness to think it. The perfect personality of God throws our moral failings into sharp relief and grounds, therefore, the religious quest for forgiveness for restoration, for wholeness, for shalom, as the Old Testament puts it. In Psalm 19, David simply asks God for forgiveness and help. Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. It's not that God would suddenly deprive David of his own moral responsibility But through developing a relationship with God, David's character would grow more like God's character. That David would become so consumed by the glory of God that that would outweigh the apparent attractiveness of sin. For David, both the heavens and the moral law speak to us of God because they are both spoken by God to us as it were. David recognises that he falls short of God's moral character as do we all. But he also recognises that since the moral law isn't just some abstract ideal but it is in fact part and parcel of God's very character That therefore it's possible to seek forgiveness for the past and strength for the future in a relationship with God. Thus Psalm 19 calls us to a life of objective value and purpose lived out of the forgiveness and hope that flows from knowing our creator's love for us. Amen.